Dr. Luke, the man who wrote the gospel that we will be exploring for this next church year, is at his heart a historian. I want you to, to listen to how he begins his gospel here. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom or who first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. From the outset of his gospel, Luke makes his purpose clear. He wants certainty. And not just certainty for Theophilus, but for every person who reads Luke's gospel until the day that Christ Jesus returns. He wants people to be certain of the things that they have been taught, the things that they've learned, the promises that they believe. He wants them to be certain that the things that happened, the ministry and miracles of Jesus that took place, the events that were carried out, that they didn't happen in some galaxy far away a long, long time ago. That they happened in real time, in a real place. And that the characters woven into the narrative of his gospel and the larger narrative of scripture were real people. All of this Luke does because he wants you to be certain. Certain of the promises that you believe, certain of the things that you've been taught. And when you begin to uncover Luke's gospel and dig into it, you're led to marvel not only at his great attention to detail and his historical accuracy, but also at his grasp of the Old Testament. And in Luke chapter 3 this morning, you get a, a glimpse of both of these things. At the outset of John the Baptist's ministry, a, a ministry that began when the word of God came upon John, Luke points to a, a specific prophecy, a prophecy that Jews had clung to for centuries as a, a source of comfort and hope. Luke points to John and says, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, that John is the voice of the one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And then using that same prophecy, Luke points to what all of this preparation was about, that all of this preparation was so that all people, all flesh, will see the salvation of God. Now, this is a prophecy that God's people, the Jews, had clung to for seven and a half centuries. They clung to this as a source of promise and of comfort and of hope, but, but the further removed they were from the original giving of that prophecy, that promise, the more it seemed like that promise wasn't going to be fulfilled. The further removed they were from the giving of that promise, the more it seemed like God wasn't in control that God's promises no longer stood. And when you look at the history behind or that, that Israel went through it, you can understand that, that feeling a little bit. Right? They went through two major captivities. They went through political instability in their own nation. They went through their own spiritual corruption. Their religious leaders were spiritually corrupt. They went through physical depravity. And with all of that, all of that, all of that they took as external evidence as external evidence of God's lack of working in this world or totally giving up on, the, on his people and the fact that all of these promises that God had made since the fall into sin in the garden were no longer going to come true, that they no longer stood. And even at the, when John the Baptist burst forth in his ministry, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, God's people looked at the reality in which they were living and they still, they thought, found evidence of God's promises no longer standing. 
Right, and Luke points out to us what the evidence would be that they would point to. Listen, listen to uh, this list of things that Luke writes. Luke chapter 3, in the, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eturia and Tronconitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came upon John. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Licinius, Philip. These were the power players. Right? These were the political leaders, the big dogs, who ruled over every place where God's people dwelled. There was not a thing that went on underneath there or in their regions that these people didn't know about. And the decisions they made, the way that they wielded their power, wasn't for the benefit of God's people. It wasn't even for the benefit of the other Romans who were, who were living in these places. It was, it was all for themselves. Right? It was all for their own power and their own glory and for their name to, to be greater in the annals of history. Luke also adds two more names to the end of that list, Annas and Caiaphas. You remember who these guys were? These were the high priests of God's people. They were the ruling norm for all Jewish life, and they were just as corrupt as their political counterparts. Right? These were the guys who enforced laws and practices and sacrifices and regulations that only had an ancillary connection to God and to the office which they were in that God established, right? being high priests. They used their power not only to line their own pockets, but also to, to secure for themselves safety and security with the Romans who were ruling over them. These were the people in charge in John the Baptist's day. And God's people would look at them and the way that they wielded their power as proof that God was no longer in control, as proof that God's promises no longer stood. And this is especially, this is especially brought into question when John the Baptist is later thrown into prison for calling Herod on his sin. So God's people would look at the promise that God gave them a voice of one calling in the wilderness, a messenger is going to come ahead of me to prepare my way for me so that all people will see the salvation of God. But now that messenger and that voice is in prison. God, it sure seems like you're not in control. It seems like your promises are no longer being fulfilled. They're no longer effective. Look, I get that a list of names from the first century, like Tiberius and, and Philip and Licinius and Pontius Pilate and some first century historical context might not mean a whole lot to you today. But I think that you guys will find that you have more in common with these first century people of God than you might realize. Because you and I hear that same promise that God's people did from Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Your faith clings to that promise. You believe that promise. And yet, when you look out in the world and you see everything that goes on, it becomes increasingly more difficult to balance the promise of God and the reality in which we live. And like God's first century people, when we look at everything that transpires in our world, we are tempted to look at that as proof, as supposed evidence that God is no longer in control and that his promises no longer stand. I mean, when you look out at the world and you see who's in control, it certainly doesn't seem like it's God, does it? The church and her leaders and God's word, God's promises seem to have no sway over, over the direction and the course of this world. And the people actually in charge? Right, they're the political leaders and the business leaders and cultural influencers. 
I mean, right now, the, the, some of the biggest headlines in the news surround tech giant Meta, right, who as of five days ago used to be known as Facebook. They're embroiled in all sorts of controversy because of this one person, Frances Haugen, right, this whistleblower. She pointed out the fact that this tech giant has, had blatantly used misinformation to mislead the public and affect the American psyche. Right? They're trying to shut her down so that, so that they can get back to what their mission is, developing more and better technology to connect people. And we know what Facebook, Facebook has a huge influence on who we are as a, as a culture, right? A bunch of us have it on our phones. A bunch of us use it on a daily basis, almost, almost to our detriments. But it's not just tech giants, right? Political, political leaders and, uh, and Supreme Court justices are in a battle right now uh, in a case that may overturn Roe versus Wade. You have the same political leaders in courts trying to determine whether freedom of speech and freedom of religion is, is really free. And it's not, that's not just happening in our own country. It's happening around the world. Uh, in Finland, there's a Lutheran pastor who has been charged with a hate crime. Do you know why? Because he wrote a book in 2004 that outlined the biblical view of marriage and human sexuality. You look at who the power players, the political big dogs, the cultural influencers are in our world, and the way that they use their wield their power to make decisions. It certainly seems like Everyone but God is in control, and like God's people of old, we are tempted to think that all of this is some sort of supposed evidence that, that God has lost control, that he's no longer working, and that his promises are no longer effective, no longer being fulfilled. And when an attitude like that takes place in our hearts, do you know what we need most? We don't need a political leader to be overthrown. We don't need the church to be running the world. We don't need cultural influencers to be silenced. We don't need Meta to develop some better technology to supposedly connect us better. What we need is a messenger. What we need is the voice of one calling in the, the wilderness of this world, uh, a messenger crying out to us from the barren wasteland of our sin. We need this messenger to bring his message of repent for the kingdom of God is near. We need to be brought to repentance for our sin because because you recognize what it is that sin does to us, I think, right? Our sin blinds us. Our sin blinds us from the reality of God's working in this world. It blinds us from being able to see God's fulfilling of his promises and the efficacious nature of these promises. I mean, this was John the Baptist's job for those first century people of God, wasn't it? He was the great forerunner of Jesus. He was the guy who was sent to a people living under a foreign political power who had turned their hearts far away from God, he was to go to these people. He was to go to them and prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord. And how did John do it? He didn't do it as a, as a spiritual big dog. He didn't do it as a cultural influencer. In fact, John, the guy who is a nomadic desert dweller, who wears camel hair clothing and eats a diet of locust and wild honey, is probably the antithesis of what a cultural influencer is. John, he did not overturn people's hearts and prepare people for God's coming with any of that. He did so with the only tool that is powerful enough to actually do it. He did it with the word. John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John knew, as a sinner, John knew that the preparation for, for God's coming, it all needed to start in the heart needed to start with repentance, having sorrow 
worked in your, in your heart over the sins that you have committed. Israel, God's people, the Jews, they needed to have sorrow worked by the law of God over their religious cynicism and their moral corruption, over their despair of, uh, and disbelief of, a, of the sovereignty of God and all of the promises that he makes. And, and once that repentance was worked and they were led to trust in God for their one and only source of forgiveness, do you know what happened? It's like they put on a new pair of glasses. The spiritual blinders were removed and they were able to clearly see. They were able to clearly see that John is the fulfillment of the, the promise that God made, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. That John is the, the fulfillment of that prophecy from Malachi. I will send my messenger ahead of me to prepare my way. That John is the one pointing them to the fact that the time is now where they will see the salvation of God, the salvation in Christ the Messiah. Despite all of the evidence to the contrary, God was still working. God was still in control. God was still fulfilling all of his promises. Despite all of the, all of the evidence to the contrary in the 21st century, I want you to understand that God is still working. God is, in fact, still in control. God is still working to advance his kingdom, all for the fulfillment of that promise that all flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh, you and me. But do you know what needs to happen before we clearly see all of that? Our sin needs to be dealt with. Because every single one of us, we're all tempted to think that God has kind of lost control, that God has lost his way. We're all tempted to think that we don't need this message of John's repentance. We all have these mountain and mountains and hills of sins that need to be made low, these sins of spiritual pride that say, I haven't done anything that bad this week to, to need to be called to repentance. We have these mountain and hills of, of a prideful intellect and heart that, that leads us to try to judge the way that God works in this world as if you and I can do better, as if, as if we will do better. We all have these crooked roads and, and rough paths of evil that we walk in this life. These paths that stray from the commands of God, the, the path that, that leads to a, a righteous life. And some of these crooked roads, they're roads that everybody can see, the the roads of gossip or the roads of pride that, that lead you to put somebody down because you simply think you are better or you know better or you do better. We all have these valleys of sin that we sit in. The weakness of faith, uh, the despair, the doubt, and the sovereignty of God and all of the promises that he makes you. You understand that in order for us to see clearly, to see clearly the salvation of God, that all of that needs to be dealt with. That every crooked path needs to be straightened out. Every rough place made smooth. Every mountain and hill needs to be totally demolished. Every valley filled in. All of that needs to happen in order for us to clearly be able to see God and be able to understand that he is still working and he still is in control and that his promises still stand. And Do you know how God does that for us? How God prepares our hearts? Here's word. He prepares our hearts in no other way except through his word. God needs to work through his word to crush our stony hearts with the law, to show us our sin and lead us to, to sorrow and contrition over it, only later to heal it, to heal it with the power of the gospel. And do you know how God usually does this? He does it through a messenger, a messenger that he sends into your life to call you to repentance. 
for those first century Jews, that was John the Baptist, right? John came to these people, not as Annas and Caiaphas in this office of the high priest, not as a spiritual, spiritually elite person, but rather as a sinner. Someone like them who needed to be called to repentance just like they did. God works through his word and he sends messengers into your life to work repentance in your hearts. And sometimes that messenger is a guy like me standing before you on a Sunday morning preaching to you. But I think you all recognize that you live, that, that you live lives that are outside of church, right? I, I don't get an opportunity to spend every single waking moment with you. So, so sometimes the John the Baptist that God sends into your life is not your pastor. It's, it's a family member, a spouse, it's a friend, sometimes even a child. These people, they intimately know all of the mountains and, and hills of sin upon which you stand. They're, they're people who know the valleys of despair and doubt that you sit in. They're, they're people who know the crooked ways of, of evil that you walk. And these people, they come to you with the word of God, like John the Baptist did, and they call you to repentance. They call you to repentance to remove those blinders of sin so that you are able to clearly see. And so when these people, when, God's, when, when your John the Baptist comes to you and calls you out, don't hate them. Don't spurn them like many of the first century people did. Because what they are doing is of internal import, eternal importance. What they are doing is speaking to you in love. Because they want to lead you to repentance just like their own hearts need to be led to repentance. All so that you can clearly see. That you can clearly see Christ who became one with us to make us one with him. So that you can clearly see Christ's shame and suffering, his his rejection and death, but when you're led to repentance, you don't stop there. You go even further and you look at Christ's resurrection from the dead, his own vindication and restoration. When you're led to clearly see all of that, you recognize that there is indeed forgiveness for all of those mountains and hills of sin in your life. You see that there is indeed reprieve for all of the guilt and shame in those valleys in which you dwell. You're led to see that by Christ and for Christ and because of Christ, all of those valleys are filled. All of those mountains made well, all with his grace and his mercy and his love, all so that you can clearly see the fulfillment of that promise that is for each and every one of you, so you can see the salvation of your God. And when you're clearly led to see that salvation, you recognize that there's not just one fulfillment for that promise. There's actually two. And you clearly see you're led to recognize that that second fulfillment is that last day that Malachi talked about this morning. That great and glorious day when Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Where That day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day when every creature, when all flesh will see the salvation of God. That day is surely coming. And until that day comes, this is Christ's desire for each and every one of you. Keep preparing. Keep preparing your hearts. And isn't that what Advent is all about? A season of preparation? We prepare our hearts by looking back at and celebrating the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, taking on flesh and blood to be our Savior. But we also prepare our hearts by looking forward with Isaiah and Malachi and John the Baptist and all of God's people of old to that day when Christ will return. And so until that day comes, as we live between that reality of the now and not yet, keep preparing your hearts. Keep living in this constant state of repentance and renewal. 
with all of the strength and mercy that God grants you, keep ingesting and digesting the word of God, finding the strength to live the life that God calls you to live, to walk on those paths of God's commandment, of God's commandments, where he teaches you to love him and to love your neighbor and to serve and give him glory. Keep preparing your hearts because that last day is surely coming. That is God's promise to you. And no matter what you see and hear out there, no matter all of the evidence you, you think you have to the contrary, God is still in control. God is still working. God is still advancing his kingdom for the fulfillment of that promise. That all flesh, all creation, will see the salvation of God. Amen.